What's going on, do-gooders, world changers, and hellraisers? We are Hairpin, a collective of creatives, communicators, and strategists working with organizations to design for disruption, to solve problems, to communicate their stories. Um, we have a full team here today. So my name is Nick Tatro, art director at Hairpin. My name is Kristen Hughes. I'm a co-founder and a creative director at Hairpin. I'm Sean. I'm a communication strategist and a partner with Hairpin. Craig Bida, partner, brand strategy with Hairpin. And today's going to be a very cool show because for the first time we have a guest on today's show. Kristen, do you want to introduce our guest? I would like to uh, introduce Kim Sito, um, an old friend of Hairpin. Um, she was one of our partners on one of our favorite projects where we followed seven of um, her grantees for a program called Creative City, which I'm hoping we can dig into. Um, and we wanted to check in with her about how it's been going these last six months as she's uh, facing the pandemic and how that works with the programming that she does at NIFA. Hi, Kim. I'm Kim Sito, Program Director for Public Art here at the New England Foundation for the Arts. So, Kim, we thought it would be great to catch listeners up to right to the door of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, I guess <laughs> as the as the news was starting to unfold, you know, some of us were um, more alarmist than others early on. I would probably say that I fell into the alarmist category category <laughs> um, and was definitely getting a little concerned about what was coming our way. Um, and at NIFA, <laughs> we were, let's see, this was back in March. So we were just about to launch our next round of Creative City Boston applications. Um, I think we had like the newsletter queued up and the day that we moved to work from home, I had to uh, chat our communications team to say, I think we need to pull the Creative City Boston announcement from the newsletter and just take a moment to rethink, is this the right moment to ask artists to imagine um, their most creative public interventions for 2021, knowing that we had just slammed on the brakes and um, all started working from home. <laughs> you think, uh, Kim, can we break down a little bit of what Creative City is? Because we all know, obviously, having worked on the project, but I think to understand what Creative City is or was um, is important to really understand the pivot that comes, you know, post-pandemic. Yeah, so Creative City Boston is a program here at the New England Foundation for the Arts that supports Boston area artists to create um, socially engaged public art here in Boston that's um, you know, inspiring public imagination, engaging important conversations that are happening in our communities. Um, it's supported by the Bar Foundation, uh, which is also located here in Boston. And we started the program, um, let's see, in 2015. Uh, and had five rounds of grantees during the pilot phase um, and launched uh, in one cohort. We, yeah, we launched our first cohort um, after the redesign in 2020. So we also, at the top of this year, at the top of 2020, we had just launched our Creative City Boston 2020 
cohort, our, our new fresh team of artists and community partners um, who are ready to do some amazing things here in the city this year. Um, we got together at the beginning of February and that was um, looking back now. <laughs> it's, it's even more special of a moment because it was the first and maybe last time we'll all gather um, together in person. And Kim, I mean, as I think of Creative City, who you know, who's, the goal of Creative City is to get art into places that don't traditionally have access to it. As I think about those projects, I think about theatrical performances and neighborhoods. I think about art, experiential uh, installations. I think about all these things that, in a moment, became disappeared. It became things that we would find objectionable in a time of pandemic. Can you tell us about the conversations that you had internally about what you know what that means for not only NIFA and your team operationally, but for your grantees and for the projects that you try to promote and seed? Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, you know, public art uh, pre-pandemic was just happening. You know. Sometimes you saw it, sometimes you didn't. Um, it was just a part of our everyday lives in a lot of ways. Um, and as we moved into pandemic, our understandings and concepts of public um, radically changed. Suddenly, you know, our busy downtown streets were barren. Our rush hour traffic felt like a lazy Sunday. <laughs> um, we didn't have that same activation of public space as we once did. And then on top of it, a fear of, of being in public or being around others, um, which felt really counter to the heart of socially engaged public art. You know, it's about bringing people together. It's about building community and building a sense of shared understanding of place and community. Um, and suddenly all of that, felt like it was in question as we wrestled with, you know, what does, what does this virus COVID-19 um, mean? <laughs> um, and, and how is it changing the way we interact with one another? Um, and then beyond public art, it's, you know, it's at NIFA, uh, the bulk of our grant programs are performance art space. We have a national theater program and a national uh, dance program as well as our New England presenting and touring programs. And I'd say that field um, has dramatic, yeah, dramatically shifted. Um, you know, theaters closed, uh, uh, performance groups that were planning to tour had to cancel their entire season. Um, during those early months of the pandemic, there were questions of, you know, should artists just jump into the virtual world and just start doing things virtually? Is is that what we should be doing? Or or maybe everybody, you know, as we got further into the season um, here in Boston, we really value our summers. <laughs> um, and the thought of, oh, maybe performances should just move outside. <laughs> um, you know, uh, coming into the, the realm of, of public art and art in the public realm and, um and I, I feel like we, there was a lot of trying out, <laughs> trying on, trying out. And 
and figuring out um, what was fitting. But I, I think what we realized while we were, I like to say, um, building the ship while we were sailing or someone recently said to me, it's like lighting the birthday candles while you're baking the cake. <laughs> um, I love that analogy because I feel like that's what this whole pandemic has felt like. You know, where we have these unknown um, time limits on you know what we're doing and, and when we're doing it and how we're doing it, um, but we're trying to build something totally new all at the same time. And I think one thing that I realized was um, what we could really use is, is a moment to um, not let this sense of urgency dictate how and what we do, but to lean into our, um, to some imagination to say, actually, we need to reimagine what we're doing and how we're doing it rather than just trying to do it, <laughs> just trying to sail that, that ship um, while we're building it. And so we did a little bit of that um, at the beginning of the pandemic. We pushed pause and gave us gave ourselves the opportunity um, to rethink, you know, is Creative City Boston um, the right opportunity for us to be launching right now? Um, even though the ship was fully built, <laughs> we had the grant application ready to go. Um, I think we even had the grantee reports ready to go, which isn't always the case with, you know, <laughs> with the new application. Um, so br- yeah. bring us into some of those conversations, bring us in, you know, bring us to that moment um, when you came to that, to that realization as a team and, and realized that, you know, this is probably for the long haul and particularly in Boston yeah. and you, you know, have to do some rethinking about what you deliver. Yeah. I'd say we really leaned into our um, current grantees. We, um, connected with you know our current Creative City Boston cohort um, and checked in with them immediately. Um, held some space to just see where everybody was at, um, and you know virtual space, of course. Um, and realizing artists who were you know just at the beginning stages. This was March, so they were about three months into their projects. Um, hearing their reflections on this moment and not really knowing how much they're pivoting, but knowing that, you know, this, this could mean some major changes for their, their individual projects. Um, I realized just watching and listening um, to their struggles with, you know, how are we, how are we entering this, this new, um, this new reality? It was helpful for me to realize, yeah, okay. As artists, they're struggling. Um, with everything else that the rest of us are struggling with. They're not these magical unicorns that can just, you know, throw rainbows all over our city. (laughs) And um, we can't expect uh, artists to, we can't, we can't treat our artists in an extractive way where, you know, we need them to entertain us or we need them to um, bring us hope or we need them to, inspire us during this moment, you know, yes. And they're humans. (laughs) They've got their own struggles. They've got their own families. They're working through this pandemic, just like the rest of us. Um, And remembering that um, this is an ecosystem. It's, it's not about extraction. It's about 
sustaining each other through this moment um, and figuring out, you know, what listening to, to what artists needed in the moment and, um, and stretching ourselves to be a little more flexible to, um, you know, in our, in the first few months, um, we pivoted a lot of our programming towards COVID relief support, um, recognizing that um, a lot of artists uh, are part of the gig economy and that they were losing not only artistic gigs, but also speaking engagements and residencies. And, um, and some of them also worked in the food industry. And so they were losing another source of income on top of their artistic income. Um, so we, you know, we made small changes at the beginning, like um, offering an additional uh, supplemental COVID payment to our current grantees, rec- recognizing that um, their projects were likely going to take longer um, given the the need to restart <laughs> in this new reality. Um, and just needing some support to to almost buy some time to get through what this shift would mean for them um, before expecting them to just keep producing as usual. Yeah. Kim, you know, one of the things about this pandemic, it's that it's bared sort of weaknesses and things in systems that weren't working to begin with, you know, as you describe acting with empathy towards your stakeholders, not being extractive, thinking of as an ecosystem, you wonder why did it take COVID to get to acting and behaving in that way? And so do, do you have any reflections about the, you know, the, perhaps the hope, the hope of lasting impacts of change, of maybe resetting how we're interacting with each other that we're seeing across many other different sectors and industries? Any reflections on, on those discoveries, which in some ways are so real and human? And I guess we should be doing that anyway, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like the pandemic is given us all an opportunity to ask why a little more, (laughs) Um, you know, why are we doing things the way we're doing it? Um, Why isn't it working for some people? Um, And why has it been working for others? I think those questions we, you know, didn't have time for before, or, you know, we're too, um, too meta (laughs) for us to think about. We have to focus on, on the doing, um, I feel like that's a very um, New England mentality. (laughs) Um, I was just going to say like one of the things about the uh, Creative City is it um, put funds directly, funded artists directly to decide what kind of project they want to do in their community, but it also partnered artists with a community partner. Um, And I think that... um, you know, Kim, one of the things about like wanting to talk to you was that perspective because we stood with you in the upstairs uh, room as you started to map out the network. You were drawing lines and, and, and just like one relationship after another was beginning to show and weaving the city together in a way that I don't think um, if you weren't in the room with you, you would understand. There was this... Um, like burgeoning and growing network um, that was 
tightening the fabric. Um, and then we come to this moment. And I'm wondering if there's a way to reflect on how that fabric that was just like really more and more tight as the, the projects went on and you were launching into the next round, if you saw um, it activate, like if that fabric was like, oh, I see like those, those, those threads that were woven are really holding up. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it was, the fabric was really woven in combination, not only with Creative City Boston and the artists and the community partners within the program, but thinking about what evolved over um, the last five years here in the city of Boston and the investment um, from the city with the cultural plan, as well as um, the support we received from the Bar Foundation and uh, you know, the Boston Foundation launching Live Arts Boston, um, now and there launching the Accelerator Program. Um, there, over the last five years, there was a real investment in artists and, and lifting up um, artists who, you know, might not have been seen or receiving, you know, who might not have been receiving grants um, from our organizations before. And suddenly um, they're, yeah, there, there is a, a greater like knowing of who is out there. And I think that's really helped in terms of um, knowing where the need has been. Um, and, it, you know, it definitely isn't perfect, but I think, you know, if the pandemic had hit Boston five years ago, I wonder if it would have been a very different scene for the arts, um, the arts community. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm struck by... Um, you talked about the moment uh, or a series of moments when as a team, you sort of regrouped and, and, and as you were talking, it, it, it struck me that what you were doing is often what we find ourselves facilitating our clients doing, which is returning back to something, right? You knew you had to pivot. You knew that change was inevitable, and you had to do something differently moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about what I recognized as some beliefs, right? There's some fundamental truths that, that you, you were sort of pivoting on, you know, kind of returning back to them and then figuring out, okay, now what forward? You know, one of them was artists are people. They have needs. They have humans. Let's treat them that way. Can you talk about some others? Uh, uh, not just beliefs, but those sort of foundational mm. values that you knew your public art team and projects had to represent in order to continue to be you? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's funny, 2020, <laughs> the way things unfolded in 2020, it's like, I feel like in retrospect, when I look back on it, it would be like writing, writing a logical plot to a, <laughs> a good mystery novel or something. <laughs> because you know, not only did we have our cohort gathering back in February um, as a team and as an organization, we actually had taken a moment in early February um, to have a visioning session for our public art team, recognizing this was the first time that um, that NIFA as an organization, I mean, we've, we've had fun for the arts as a part of the fabric of NIFA for over 20 years and um, public art has always been a part of NIFA, but in terms of having two full-time staff and 
multiple programs within the organization under public art, um, we had a realization that we, we needed to define our vision for this department. We had to decide what our values were um, and how we were talking about public art and, and to name what, what it was that you know, we wanted to see our public art programming um, doing in, in Boston and in the region and, um, and beyond. And so we spent a full day <laughs> um, hashing out, you know, what, what were our visions for public art? Um, and then, you know, March, April came along and we took those 30 pages of notes <laughs> and said, yeah, we have to go back to this. We have to look back at, at this conversation because this is what we need to hold on to moving forward. Um, we, you know, we, we had a lot of conversations about what's the difference between vision and values and goals. <laughs> and um, I feel like with vision and values, those are the things you hold on to and, and your goals might shift depending on what's happening in the world. Um, but your vision and values are core to, to why you're doing the work that you're doing. You know, some of the, the core values that we um, landed on as an organization is this idea that, you know, public art has the power to shift public culture and change the future. This idea that, you know, it's not um, just beautifying our neighborhoods or, um, you know, we like a good mural, but it's not just about a good mural. <laughs> it's this understanding that, you know, our public spaces are, um, are and should be some of our most democratic spaces where everyone should have the right to be, thrive, express, and connect, to borrow the words of our colleagues at the Design Studio for Social Intervention. Um, that's kind of our shorthand definition for um, how, how we think about spatial justice, um, which has kind of become the core of, of how we think about um, public art. To bridge to this, you know, at the same time as we encourage and and support and drive people back to that radical understanding of themselves, using the word radical in the sense of the roots, like what's in your core. And it sounds like you had those thirty pages of outpouring of probably you know a thousand pages of thinking that went into into those. At the same time, the the world is changing so quickly that there is a need to orient to a different reality, right, and to think about about how the context has changed, how the needs of others, that your stakeholders have changed. And so how have you also evolved while going deep back to your roots? How have you shifted in your perception of the role of public art, the way that you're going to support it, you know, what it is, what it means? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, part of the core is thinking about how public art has a role in, in shifting our future. And in our present moment, as, um, you know, racial justice really became something that was very present in, in our public realm and in our news. And, and, you know, it wasn't just activists talking about it anymore. This was what everyone was talking about um, and watching, you know, over dinner when they're watching the evening news, if anybody still does that. <laughs> um, uh, but thinking about the role of public art in um, promoting spatial justice, promoting this understanding of who has the right to be, thrive, express, and connect in public space. We couldn't divorce spatial justice from racial justice, that they were 
essential in, in thinking and talking about them together, especially when we think about public spaces. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think that was a big shift being more explicit about our commitment to racial justice um, as every organization did um, shortly after George Floyd's death. Um, we put out a racial justice statement um, that was, you know, wonderful language, but how, how do we take that language and put it into action? And for the public art team, it was really folding that into our program design and making it explicit that this is, this is a core value of this program and our funding priorities are going to reflect these core values. Um, Kim, can you give uh, the definition of what spatial justice means? Sure. Um, So to borrow the words of our colleagues over at the Design Studio for Social Intervention, we tend to think about spatial justice as the right to be, thrive, express, and connect in public spaces. Um, And when we think about spatial justice, sometimes it's easier to think about it in the reverse, you know, who, who doesn't have the right to be, thrive, express, and connect in public space? And this pandemic moment has, you know, shined the light on this a little bit. George Floyd didn't have the right to just be in public space. Ahmaud Aubrey didn't have the right to just be in public space. Um, when I think about those injustices, um, that helps me to reframe, you know, how do we create public space so that individuals like George Floyd or Ahmaud Aubrey and so many others can just be <laughs> um, and not feel the threat of police brutality, um, racial profiling? Um, yeah, that, that there's when we tend to lean into the like oh, we're past racism thing. Um, When we ask that question of who doesn't have the right to be, try to express or connect, um, it really um, makes it a lot clearer that we aren't past um, racism and and so many other injustices right now. Um, Kim, you sent out a thing about, uh, I think it was an email, just like, hey, we're we're launching this thing. I'll get back to you in a second. Um, (laughs) And uh, you shared the... uh, blog post, people can find it on the NIFA website, but also um, there's uh, almost like the, the the theory of change around spatial justice that um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a body of work. It's a, it's a, it isn't just two words. I mean, it comes with a huge amount of heft behind it. Um, and the, the partnership that you have with Kenny and Lori, who are just amazing thinkers, as I think of you, Kim, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk in these sort of like very like calm tones, but like inside there's like this burning fire, you know, like I know like how radical and um, like um, ready to step in to like, where you need to be in the conversations that need to happen and the way that you're ready to really push in the very Kim way, um, which, uh, I mean, I just want to sort of acknowledge like the, the external view of the work that we see you do in the public realm. Um, and like the incredible, um, lens that you bring and depth and rigor, um, 
but I also think it's really important to uh, just say like your social justice roots are deep and you are a fierce <laughs> fighter. Um, and I just need people to understand, like, I know her voice sounds very calm, but she's so fat. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thanks, Kristen. I'm just about to swear, Craig. Don't um, swear. I'm not swearing. Um, so I just want to, like the spatial justice, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, that blew my hair back because it felt really aligned to what you've been saying for all of the years that we've been talking. Um, So we don't have to include that, but I wanted to just bring some of that fire into this conversation because I really feel like you made the space for that conversation. So let's talk about spatial justice. Um, Yeah, and and appreciate hearing that. Thank you. (laughs) Maybe a bridge, just a thought, like for our listeners, right? Kim, we're always trying to find nuggets that we can offer out for someone in a similar role. So it sounds like you went through the the life cycle of a statement leading to thinking and reaction to a statement, and then you took the next step, right? You 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 latched into an existing idea around spatial justice. You made it your own in this way, and then you talked about folding it into program design. So what advice, and maybe it's a little late in the game where we are now, but it's probably not too late for some organizations to keep thinking about how do I make this real? How do I convert that fire that Kristen referenced into real action? So what what would you offer to organizations maybe that are still sort of figuring out their voice, maybe afraid of taking the risk that you are unafraid of taking as you step out more boldly? What, what, do, you, what do you offer folks at that sort of space uh, emotional and, and physical space of change and, and trying to figure out a way forward? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, maybe the first thing I'd, I'd say is, if not now, then when? <laughs> I think we're at, we are at a moment of urgency here. And um, if we don't change our course, we're going to be in a lot more trouble <laughs> in the future. Um, so yeah, if not now, then when? Um, and be more specific. <laughs> I think oftentimes we, when we get scared of saying what needs to be said, uh, we dance around the edges. We have really vague language. We kind of allude to keywords, but we don't back it up <laughs> um, with specifics. And I'd say get specific with what you mean. Um, and you might upset some people, but we're not here to be people pleasers. <laughs> um, and Kim, I like that you also said tie it to action. Like it can't just be words. It can't just be aspirational in this moment um, that you took words and tied specific action, um, which I think is a lot, a huge struggle for organizations. Cause once they say it, they're like, and I'm out. You know, it's core to like why we're even thinking about spatial justice in public art is this understanding that like public spaces are not neutral and public art made in public spaces are not neutral either. How would you advise, based on your experience, what you observed of that idea of not taking on an impossible battle, but also feeling the urgency of now of saying, no, actually, wait, we've got this commitment to change to our stakeholders, so we can't stop. So thoughts on or how you've seen that work, you know, in terms of maybe starting small or trying something or engaging partners in a different way, just anything that, you know, suggestions we might toss out to our listeners on how to how to navigate that that difficult spot of. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, NIFA as an organization, you know, we started we started to dig into equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility as an organization um, probably about three three or four years ago. Um, and having leadership support and um, a team of staff doing the hard work internally definitely helped us in this moment to um, to see the necessary work that needed to be done uh, in terms of racial justice and um, inequity. And, you know, it's, it's not perfect. It's not easy, but having that internal shared language has been really helpful. Um, yeah, I think, I think uh, an important thing is to remember that um, everyone's human and <laughs> Yeah, going back to that that understanding of empathy. That um, one thing we like to say at NEPA is, you know, we're we're all on this journey together. We might just be at different places in the journey, um, and to to be okay with that, that we might not all be at the same place in understanding um, social justice or equity or diversity or inclusion or intersectionality or accessibility. Um, but to to trust that we're we are on this journey together um, by virtue of choosing to be in this organization, um, and to keep keep building from there, it's kind of like that core value that we have to keep going back to to remind ourselves that okay, maybe someone said something that was really off putting or <laughs> not aligned, um, but they're human, <laughs> and there's room to to have conversation and to to build. Can, can you give us a, a look into the future of, of the arts? Do you see uh, you know, a year from now, many of the arts organizations we know and treasure completely gone and swept away? Do you see um, a, a reimagining that, that, that perhaps changes the role or the importance of public art? Yeah, I, my hope is that folks realize um, how essential um the arts are uh i feel like that word can't be used lightly in this moment we think about essential workers um and you know essential workers we we know who they are and we in so many ways they haven't been treated as essential um and i when i think about the arts being essential i feel not that an artist is the same as, you know, a grocery store worker or someone on the front lines working in a hospital, but I think we need to re-examine that word a little bit. Yeah, thinking about artists as artists in the arts as essential to our well-being. I think that that's my hope is that, um, you know, theater might not look the same, but the understanding that um, that the arts in, in all forms are connecting are connecting people to one another and to space and place and um, you know helping us to to bridge those conversations that um, might be hard to have or that you know that I think sometimes we rely so much on talking in conversations and we even talk about public art 
in terms of, you know, addressing some of the important conversations that are happening <laughs> in our communities. Um, but it's less literal. <laughs> it's, it's a powerful reframing of essential and asking, you know, to think about that in a different way. Yeah, go ahead. Kristen. Well, I was thinking about the, um, the spatial justice to circle back to that, uh, tagging on to the end of what you were just saying is like, I think people, the relationship with art is um, like something to consume or participate in. Um, and maybe uh, the idea of, of, collective imagination of, you know, um, being part of a conversation that builds the future that we all want um, is a different uh, tilt or understanding. Um, and that's what I think is so gorgeous about the spatial, spatial justice programs that you are have launched um, yeah. because it just, it's, it's around co-creation. It's, and it's really, you know, one of the things we talk about is, how can we put users at the center of, of everything so that whatever is being produced in the whole wide world on every, in every sector is that the user is in the center, but also part of the conversation, a co-creator and, and, um, and that spatial justice like, like hits that note so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, the collective imagination teams, you know, they're, we're supporting teams of artists, uh, cultural organizers, culture bearers, um, you know, cross-sector partnerships to rethink, reimagine um, the type of public art that would support um, the the right for Black, Indigenous, people of color to truly be, thrive, express, and connect in public space. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I think folks are a little confused about what we're asking. This isn't just a public art grant. This isn't just um, for artists. It's not just for arts organizations. And um, lately I've been feeling like <laughs> I've actually literally have tossed all my pens aside and have markers and pencils. <laughs> um, and part of that is, is being less rigid about where these lines are between artists and community, that you aren't just an artist and you aren't just a community member, that intersectionality is just who we are. <laughs> We're never just wearing one hat. <laughs> um, and blurring those lines a little bit between, um, you know, what what is an arts grant? <laughs> what is a public art grant? supporting um is it is it for an artist is it for an organization um and really reminding ourselves that um it's this work is collaborative and necessary to do together and that we can't we can't put it on the backs of artists to <laughs> solve racial justice in our public spaces for us it's um that's just not fair or realistic uh this work is um, this work towards racial justice has been happening for decades, generations. Um, there are activists and community leaders who've been deep in this work um, for a really long time. And some of them may identify as artists, some of them may not. But it almost doesn't matter. We need everybody at the table. 
Love so it. Kim, you've been through um, a process. You're 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 in the perhaps still in the midst of it. A, a, a process that's difficult. That's perhaps perhaps even you know, painful and traumatic uh, in, <laughs> in maybe some good and bad ways. Um, have you learned anything? Have you learned anything about yourself, your organization, your grantees, your partners? Yeah. Um, what have I learned? That we're not alone. <laughs> that there are a lot of people um, who are excited about this work and excited about this concept and are you know, ready as well to step in and, um, and to do the work that needs to be done. Um, yeah, I think that's been really affirming for our team to, you know, you bake a cake and you put it on the table and you hope everybody likes it. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we put these programs out into the world and we just weren't sure, you know, what the response was going to be like is, is this the right time to be launching a new program or folks still, you know, in the pandemic shuffle of, you know, just trying to make ends meet? Is anyone going to be interested? Um, and I guess we'll find out soon because our first deadline is just around the corner. Um, and as you bake that cake and put it on the table, I'm wondering, uh, it's not just like, are people going to show up and eat it? But I'm wondering if if new people are going to show up to the party, people that yeah. you wouldn't have expected. So I'm wondering if in the silver lining of having to do this massive pivot, are you finding new voices to amplify or do you anticipate finding new voices to amplify that you wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, I sure hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I, you know, we're not, it's, you know, as most grant programs go, you set a deadline and, the bulk of the applications end up coming in, you know, the last 48 hours before the deadline. So <laughs> at this point, I don't really know what's coming in or who's coming to the party, but it's that like anticipation when you're throwing a party and, you know, it's a half hour before and you're like, is anybody going to show up? <laughs> yep. I'm in that place right now, <laughs> but I have a feeling this is going to be a really good party um, that, you know, we're going to see folks from not just, Boston, but across Massachusetts, who are excited to um, to activate their public spaces in a different way. To say, you know, we're we're here and we have a voice, and um, yeah, it doesn't have to. We don't have to go back to the way things were. We're excited to try something new and to um, to put our vision out there. Um, and yeah, we're excited to to support support those those ideas. Um, I have a personal question, Kim. Yeah. Um, Cause it's sort of back on what Craig was asking about um, like an entrepreneur within, but you are um, like very entrepreneurial. Um, and I'm curious, like what you think, what do you bring in, in your, the backpack of your <laughs> tools? Um, like what got you to the point of like having the, the frame that you have, the um, drive that you have to make change, to believe that it's possible? Ooh, that's, a, that's a deep question. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's, you know, part of it is the optimism that change can happen and, and this doesn't, uh, things don't have to be this way uh, forever. Um, you know, I, I'm on the older end of being a millennial, but I guess 
some would still categorize me as a millennial <laughs> and um, yeah, that, that understanding of like impermanence um, that we can shake things up and, and it's okay. <laughs> um, I think that that's one of the tools that I, I bring with me. Um, <laughs> so this is funny. The first time I got laid off because, you know, being in my thirties, I've had many layoffs already. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first time I was laid off, um, somebody asked me, what's my tolerance for uncertainty? And I was like, that's a funny question. Um, I'm in it, aren't I? <laughs> but I think um, a high tolerance for uncertainty <laughs> is something that I um, that I always have in my backpack. Um, yeah, I I can't control, you know, what's going to happen around me, um, but I can do my best to be my best self no matter what the circumstances are. Um, and I think being in this moment, um, but yeah, that, that this work is not just about seeing quick fixes, but is about, you know, planting seeds for change as well. And I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, there, there are a lot of seeds for change planted over the last 